I want to begin this morning by reading to you a, um, a passage to set the stage for our message this morning. Very, very significant, important truth. So just listen. The Sicilian only smiled at the outburst. Then a strange look crossed his features and he pointed off beyond the man in black. What in the world can that be, he asked. The man in black turned around and looked. I don't see anything. Oh, well, I could have sworn I saw something. No matter, the Sicilian began to laugh. I don't understand what's so funny, said the man in black. Tell me in a minute, said the hunchback, but first let's drink. And he picked up his own wine goblet. The man in black picked up the one in front of him. They drank. You guessed wrong, said the man in black. You only think I guessed wrong, said the Sicilian, his laughter ringing louder. What's so funny? That's what's so funny. I switched glasses while your back was turned. There was nothing for the man in black to say. Fool, cried the hunchback. You fell victim to one of the classic blunders. The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go against the Sicilian when death is on the line. He was quite cheery until the iocane powder took effect. The man in black stepped over the corpse, then roughly ripped the blindfold from the princess's eyes. I heard everything that happened, Buttercup began, and then she said, oh, because she had never been next to a dead man before. You killed him, she whispered finally. I let him die laughing, said the man in black. Pray I do as much for you. He lifted her, slashed the bonds away, put her on her feet, and started to pull her along. Please, Buttercup said, give me a moment to gather myself. The man in black released his grip. Buttercup rubbed her wrist, stopped, massaging her, or stopped, massaged her ankles. She took a final look at the Sicilian. To think, she murmured, all the time, it was your cup that was poisoned. They were both poisoned, said the man in black. I've spent the last two years building up an immunity to iocane powder. Buttercup looked at him. He was terrifying to her, masked and hooded and dangerous. His voice was strained, rough. Who are you, she asked. I'm no one to be trifled with, he said. And that is all you need to know. And with that, he yanked her upright. You've had your moment again. He pulled her after him. And this time, she could do nothing but follow. Anybody know what that's from? The Princess Bride, right? Uh, the greatest movie ever made. And if you do not believe that, how many have not seen The Princess Bride? Okay, here's the deal. As if your salvation depended upon it, see that movie within the next week. It's the greatest movie ever made. How many of you have seen that movie at least five times? At least 10 times? At least 20 times? At least 50 times? 100 times? I guarantee you I've seen that movie 100 times if I've seen it once. It is the greatest movie ever made. And uh, this book is a book that I used to read to my children aloud when they were kids. And uh, my kids can, any of them, if you just up to my kids, we'll put my kids on the stage, you can, you can ask them. They can quote the whole movie from beginning to end. They all know it. And my wife can roll her eyes whenever we do. <laughs> How many of you knew immediately when I began to speak about the Sicilian what it was I was reading from? Okay, why did you know? Why'd you know? Because you know the story, right? And how many of you knew immediately just where we were in the story? Right? Immediately. Okay? Now we say, wow, I can't believe I came to a church where they preached from the Princess Bride. Um, 
here's the thing. Why did I do that? I wanted you to understand what I'm saying to you all the time, and I say it in all kinds of different ways, and I'm just trying to illustrate it in a way that you'll get it and it will, it will stick in your heart. It is absolutely essential to understand the context of what you are reading when you read anything, right? If I'm, for those of you who have never heard the story, don't know anything about the movie, never read the book, don't know anything about it, I was just reading and you're like, what on earth is he reading about? What does this have to do with that? No idea what he's talking about. The moment that I began speaking, others of you are thinking you're picturing goblets and iocane powder, which has no smell. You cannot see it and you cannot smell it, which comes from Australia, which is entirely populated with criminals. You know all about this, right? But the rest of you are sitting there going, what in the world is he talking about? Why is he reading from this? What does this have to do with anything? And I want to tell you that that's the kind of danger that we run into when we pick up our Bibles, and particularly, particularly when we open to the book of Psalms, because many of us have, have made a habit in our lives off and on from reading from the Psalms devotionally because we always see this beauty of God in the Psalms, and we read from the Psalms devotionally. And I'm going to tell you, that sometimes, oftentimes, I think, we actually miss the point of what we're reading in the Psalms because we don't understand anything about the context in which that Psalm was written. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. We don't know what circumstances were surrounding um, the writing of this song. And so we're just reading the Psalm as though it's just this sort of piece of poetry and it means nothing to us. And I want to make sure that we avoid that as we're doing this little quick overview of some of my favorite psalms. Today we're going to be in Psalm 46. And so, you know, go ahead and, and you know, look that up in your Bible. But before we, before we read from Psalm 46, we're actually going to be in 2 Kings chapter 18. So if you want to mark Psalm 46, turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to set the stage for you. And the reason I'm going to set the stage with 2 Kings chapter 18 is because most Bible scholars believe, and the oral tradition from the time of before Christ is, that Psalm 46, the context of Psalm 46, is that it was written right after the events of 2 Kings 18 and 19. And so as we, if we read Psalm 46, we're just going to see these words, and they're going to have a certain amount of meaning to us, but if we understand what happened in 2 Kings 18 and 19 then we're going to have a much different view of what this psalm is all about. So we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 18. And as you're turning there, I want to just tell you what's going on. There's this king, and his name is Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah is a very young king. He is the son of a king named Ahaz. Now, Ahaz is one of the great kings in Israel's history. And as you read 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles, and you, you just read this, this chronicling, if you will, of these different kings who came in and ruled Israel, and you see the, the history of Israel through this, and, and something like 85% of the kings who ruled Israel during that time of those books were evil. Most of the kings of Israel led Israel astray. But there was this king named Ahaz who rose up and he did not do things the way his father did things. In fact, his father had encouraged idolatry all throughout Israel and Ahaz had torn down the altars to the false idols and he had returned the people to worshiping God. And then when Ahaz died, his son Hezekiah became king. And when Hezekiah became king, he, he continued the work of his father at returning Israel back to their God and getting all the idols out of the land, okay? Now, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. Now, I want you to ask yourself this question. Uh, 
what were you doing when you were 25? Um, raise your hand if you were between 20 and 25 years old today. Okay. Yeah, Dave. Yeah. You know, that when you reach a certain age, you forget things, and so don't pay any attention to Dave raising his hand there. Those of you who raised your hand, I want you to think about this. I, I won't, like, draw you up on the stage and make you act this out, but I just want you to think about this. Um, you've just become king. You, they, just, they just said, you're in charge. And there's this terrorism happening all around the world, and the economy is going to pot, and there's all kinds of problems happening, and we have this problem with... Um, with the illegal immigration, and, when, and the politicians can't get along, and all of these things are going on, and somebody says, all right, you know what, we're going to scrap this whole system, no more uh, three, three house system, instead of that, we're just going to make you king, you're in charge, what are you going to do? Now just think about that for a second. When I was 25, I was so clueless. I look at today's 25-year-olds, and I'm so impressed with you guys because, like, I was drooling. I couldn't tie my shoes. I was lost at 25. And when I was about 25, 26 years old, people came to me and said, we think you should be the senior pastor of this church. And I was like, you people are very stupid. How, how is it possible? I, I, I'm so not ready for this. And I'm thinking, that was just a pastor at church. Imagine what it must have been like for Hezekiah at 25 to be told, handle all the problems of the world. And, and you know, you can change this, the names, the dates, and the situations. But as you study history, you find that the same things keep happening, right? People raise up to power, and they begin to invade other people and try to take over. And that's what was happening during his time. During his time, there was a nation called Assyria. And Assyria was just to the north of Israel. And Assyria was in the process of becoming the strongest, most powerful nation on earth. And they were just sweeping through the Middle East, and they were taking people out. A lot of what we see is similar to what we've been seeing in our own lifetimes in the Middle East, where, where governments change overnight because of coups and because of invasions and all of that kind of stuff. And so Hezekiah is facing Assyria, who wants to wipe out all of the Middle East and take them over. And this... this um, army of Assyria begins to move in toward Judah, which is where Jerusalem is, which is the capital city where Hezekiah is the king of Judah. And they've already taken out the rest of Israel, and they're trying to rule the whole Middle East, if not the whole world. And Hezekiah gives in to fear, and he strikes a deal with the king of Assyria, and he says, listen, I will pay you a huge ransom if you just don't invade us. And he actually, this is a godly king, but he goes into the temple, and he takes the gold out of the temple, which is dedicated to the Lord, and he pays it to this wicked king just so he won't invade and take over their land. But guess what happens when you pay off terrorists? They come back. And this guy kept coming back and kept coming back, and after a while, Hezekiah stops agreeing to the extortion, and the king of Assyria sends his army to Jerusalem. And when they arrive at Jerusalem, they they make an announcement. They get outside the gates of the city and they, you know, get some sort of a bullhorn or, you know, I don't know how they, they did it on radio or whatever they did, but they make this announcement. So go to 2 Kings, if you're not already there, 2 Kings chapter 18, and look at the announcement that they make. We're going to pick it up in verse 28. 2 Kings 18, 28. But Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me only to your master? Wait, I'm in the wrong place. 
18, 2 Kings 18, oh, verse 28. I'm sorry, I was in verse 27 because I'm not very smart. Verse 28, then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean. So in their language, he says this, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. So instead of negotiating with the king, he decides, I'm going to go straight to the people and I'm going to tell him, he says that you should stand against me, but don't because I'm going to wipe you out. And then um, verse 30, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. And eat each of you his vine, and each of you his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land in your own land, to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. In other words, I will, if you will just surrender... I will take you away, but you will live in a great land and you will be comfortable and you'll just become a part of our nation. But if you fight, you're going to get wiped out. Um, verse 33, this is when it gets really bold. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? In other words, we've gone nation by nation and we're taking over everyone. And here's the deal. All those nations have their gods. They all have their gods that they pray to, and they all cried out to their gods, just like you want to cry out to your God, and guess what? We wiped them out anyway. Is there any God who can come against an army this strong? Verse 34, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of something that starts with S, and Nehenna and Iva? Have they delivered from Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. Pretty bold, right? Pretty arrogant. But with good reason. They have gone nation to nation, city to city, and they have taken over everyone they've come against. And all of those people have cried out to their gods, and none of those gods have been able to do anything for their people. And we know why that is, but those people trusted in these idols that they thought were gods. But here's a little side note for you just to remember. Boy, it's really important whether your god starts with a big G or a little g. Amen? There's a big difference between God with a big G and a God with a little g. And they were serving little g gods. And they were crying out to these little g gods, and the little g gods were accomplishing nothing for them. And so this pagan king says, listen, I know what it's like to go up against praying people. I'm not the least bit concerned about that. I wipe out people no matter who their gods are. So you guys should just surrender. And he calls them to surrender and save themselves rather than stand. And by the way, isn't this the way Satan always tempts us? Just give up. There's no reason to trust God. Where's God? If God was so great, then why are things going so badly for you? Just give up. Just give in. Stop turning to your God because he's not going to deliver you. Just let me take care of you. Just follow my plan, Satan says. And the temptation makes all kinds of different forms, but basically it's the same all the time. Look at uh, 2 Kings 19 verse 1. And when, the, and when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes 
covered himself with sackcloth and entered the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household of Shebna, the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, the day is, the day is a day of distress, rebuke and rejection. For children have come to birth and there is no strength to deliver. What a picture. It's time to give birth, but there's no strength to deliver. It's a dangerous moment. Verse 4, perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So he turns to the man of God, Isaiah, and he says, listen, these kinds of threats are coming down on us. This is a terrible day. There really isn't anything we could do. We have no strength to fight this guy. His army is overwhelming. We are out of luck. What can we do? He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, and he begins to mourn and weep and cry out. And then verse 5, so the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, that which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. That's encouraging. All of a sudden, God speaks and says, listen, yeah, I heard what he said. I know what he's been doing, but I got this. Don't worry, Hezekiah, I got this. I got your back. I can handle this. And so Hezekiah holds strong. And so what does the king of Assyria do? He sends another messenger with even a more bold message. Look at verse 8. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. You're writing all these names down, right? And when he heard them say, uh, when he heard them say concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, behold, he has come out to fight against you, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't let your God deceive you. Where have we heard that before? Isn't that the exact same thing that the serpent said to Eve in the garden? Oh, God is not going to let you die simply because you disobeyed him. Don't let God deceive you. Trust me. Do it my way. Look at verse 11. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of something that starts with S, and of Hina and Iva? In other words, he goes back to the same story. Listen, I have a track record. I wipe out everybody. And so Hezekiah prays, and he calls out to God in the temple. Look at verse 14. Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and listen to the words of Sennacherib, 
which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, woods and wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kings of the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. So he prays, he calls out to God. He recognizes who God is, how awesome God is. He recognizes the difference between the true God and the false gods of these lands that have already been overcome. And he calls on God for help. And God basically says to him in the response, Hezekiah, don't worry. I got this. I really have this. Don't worry. You can trust me. And look what happens. Skip down to verse 35. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So the few remaining men wake up in the morning, they look around, there's 185,000 dead soldiers. And, and who killed these soldiers? How did they die? The angel of the Lord went out and struck them. God says, oh, oh my, an army of 185,000. This is terrifying. How will I sleep tonight? I know, I'll send one angel. That will take care of him. And I can just imagine God like calling out to the angels and he looks for the littlest, scrawniest, youngest angel because this guy never gets to do anything. I'm just going to send him. It's only 185,000 warriors. And he sends this angel to 185,000 warriors and they get wiped out. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Yeah, you think? He says to his messenger, listen, what happened? 185,000 of my best men dead? How in the world did this happen? What happened? And the guy says, they got angels. And I heard they got more of them. And he says, let's go, let's go, let's get out right now. And he goes home. And it came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adramelech and Sherez killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And... Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Wow. By the way, is that a familiar story to you? Did you get that in Sunday school when you were a kid? 185,000 people. We've heard a million times about one giant that fell. 185,000 warriors wiped out just because an angel said, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, and they're dead, wiped out. And this army that was so bold and so proud and so ready to come against the one true God said, there's no God who could defend his people against us. And God said, watch this. I'm going to send one angel. He's going to take care of everything. And they got up and left. And so I ask you, who are you going to trust? Where are you going to put your trust? You're going to put your trust in the God with the big G or are you going to put your trust in the God with a little G? Are you going to listen to the word of God that says, listen, I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and I have all power and all authority and all dominion, and no one can come against me if I raise my hand? Or are you going to listen to the voice of the enemy who says, you can't trust God, just follow me, I have a better plan for your life. Who are you going to listen to? And that becomes the foundation. You're like, wow, you preached a whole sermon on that. No, 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 that's the introduction. That's the foundation for our look at Psalm 46. So let's turn to Psalm 46 now. 
Because I want us to understand what was going on in the heart of the psalmist when he wrote the words that we're going to read in Psalm 46. And we don't know for sure whether he wrote this psalm um, as a response to this, but that is the tradition. And if it wasn't as a response to this, it was a response to something exactly like this, I guarantee you. So Psalm 46, let's pick it up in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very, a very present help in trouble. And all God's people said, Amen. we could just stop there. That's it. You got verse 1, you got the psalm. God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in time of trouble. That's it. That really, the whole psalm is just going to explain that to us. In fact, you don't even need that whole first verse. Let's just make it simple. This is the Cliff Notes version of this sermon, okay? Let's just stop with the first two words. God is. Guys, that's it. If you get that one, you got it. If you understand that God is and who God is and how God is, then you can have absolute boldness and faith and confidence to walk no matter what the situation is around you. Because my friends, listen, this is the message of the whole scripture from beginning to end. God is. It's an incredible thing. Let me begin by asking you this question. We're just going to take a break right now, in the middle of this sermon, and I'm going to ask you, has anybody seen the new uh, James Bond movie? Yeah? Any, any James Bond fans? Do you like James Bond movies? What is James Bond's favorite drink? A martini, shaken, not stirred, right? He doesn't drink anything else. That's it. Shaken, not stirred. All I could get was Daniel Craig, the only one that showed uh, the real James Bond, Sean Connery. Was, uh, he was an old guy, and he didn't look like James Bond anymore. Anyways, that's his drink, a martini, shaken, not stirred. Today's message is entitled, Stirred, Not Shaken. I want you to understand something, that, that when we stand with God, when we stand on God's word, you are going to still get stirred up. You know why? Because you live in this world. You know, I was just having a great day on Friday until all of a sudden the news broke and there was terrorism breaking out all over Europe and I was going, oh my gosh, and my whole heart is stirred and I just stop and I think, what in the world's going on? How many times have we been going along just fine and we absentmindedly just pick up the phone because it rings and the voice on the other end changes our lives and we're stirred up? How many times do we turn on the news and we see what's going on in the world and we're just stirred up? And yet the word of God says that the followers of God cannot be shaken. And I want us to understand something, that as we walk with God, we will get stirred. The world is going to continue to be the way the world is. But we do not need to be shaken. And the reason is, God is. That's the message. And it's the whole message, really, of Scripture beginning to end. It begins with this. What are the first words of the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The first four words of Scripture. If you can agree with the first four words, then the rest should be no problem to you. In the beginning, God, our God is. 
And in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is called and the voice is coming out of the burning bush and Moses is scratching his head and he doesn't know what to do and he's not even sure who this God is. And he says, tell me your name. What does God say his name is? I am. God is. The fact that God is, my friends, is really all you need to know. If you know who God is, you know what you need to know. Your life does not have to be shaken up by the, by the circumstances surrounding you, because God absolutely is. I want you to see this in the New Testament as well. You're like, I really thought we were going to be in Psalm 46. Well, get used to it. Mark chapter 12. Turn to Mark chapter 12, New Testament. And I want, to, I want you to see a very familiar passage. It's very familiar to you. If you've been in this church for any length of time, you have heard these words before. In fact, we're sitting right here, loving God, loving people, changing the world, based on this, this verse that I'm going to read to you. It's in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Jesus has been speaking, and people are asking him questions. Verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he and answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, most of you, if you've been a Christian or you've been attending church, or you've been reading your Bible for any length of time, if I asked you, according to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, most of you would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Most of us know this, but we skip the beginning part where he is reciting the Shema, the, the chant, the mantra, if you will, of Israel. Here's what it says, hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. And that whole Lord is one Lord is like one concept. God is. And so in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, over and over and over, it just tells us, listen, you've got to get this straight. God is. Stop living like God isn't. Stop living like God doesn't exist. Stop living like the God who exists is not the God who he claims to be in the scripture. Stop living as though the God who exists doesn't have his eyes upon you and doesn't care about you with every inkling in his heart. Stop living as though God is not when the fact of the matter is God is. And the rest of the Bible just explains that in detail. Because if God exists at all, then however God is is how God is. And the Bible gives us a lot of details about how God is, but the starting point is that God is. And I know we live in a time and a culture that values inclusion, and I know we live in a time and a day where it's not considered polite to question other people's beliefs. And I know we live in a time in which, by and large, as society, we've accepted this idea that your idea is equally valid to my idea, and that there's no necessarily right and no necessarily wrong. And with all due respect and all kindness and politeness, I just want to say your argument is with the God of the Bible because he says, I alone am God. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through 
me. And that flies in the face of philosophy today that says we can all find our path to God, that all good religious roadways lead to God, and that your truth is just as valuable as your truth. It's not true. God is. And the day is going to come when everyone who disagrees with that is going to change their mind. The scripture says that the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's coming. God is. Psalm 46, verse 1. Aren't we making great progress? Psalm 46, verse 1. Sorry, sometimes I get excited. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge, the, the place where we can run for safety. God is our strength, the one who has the power that we lack. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed a refuge? Ever been in a situation where you needed strength that you didn't have? Of course you have. We've all been in those situations. Next to a bedside, next to a graveside. You can't fix it. You, you just, you don't know what to do. And if you knew what to do, you wouldn't have the power to do it anyway. And you're lost. I think a lot of us are starting to feel that way about this Islamic terrorism that's happening. It, it, it clearly is not a one-time thing that happened September 11th so many years ago. This is an ongoing, well-calculated, well-financed, hate-driven agenda. And we all realize that our safety is in danger. And, and as we see these terrorism attacks, we go, oh, it's getting worse. Those events in Paris, they just make you sick, right? And it makes you afraid. Especially when the Bible calls us, by the way, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Which is why it's so important for us that when we are praying for this, that we're not just praying for the innocent victims, but we're also praying for the guilty perpetrators, which goes so much against our norm. It's hard for us to think that people do things like this because they don't know Jesus. And that's the reason Jesus came. And it should, it should ignite our spirits to reach lost people, to pray for people who are misled by false teaching and false gods. And what can you do when you're being attacked by forces that are stronger and more vicious than you can overcome? Where do you turn to when you don't know what happened or you don't know how, how to fix what's going on? You don't have the power to do anything about it. Um, you, you will remember, I'm sure most of you remember five years ago when those uh, miners were trapped in a mine in Chile. They, there's just new movie just came out about this. It's called The 33. I saw it last night. I recommended it. It was really good. Um, but you know how, I don't know if we forget this stuff so fast. These guys were in a mine, like in a room, I want to say 2,400 feet below the surface of the earth, and there was 33 of them, and there was enough food for three days, and they were there for 69 days before they were rescued. What, what do you do in that situation? And, and in the movie, they portray this. You see their loved ones just flocking to the entrance of the mind. And, and what are they doing there? They're praying. Because what else can you do? 
They're just, they're just constantly somebody praying. And down in the mine, they're showing you these men, and they're just praying. And there are some who don't even, they're not religious at all, and they're saying, I don't know how to pray. And the ones who know God are teaching them how to pray, and they're all turning to God. Because what do you do in a situation where there is no way you can fix it? If you don't turn to God, where do you turn? May I remind you that there is a refuge to whom we can run. There is one who is strong enough to overcome even the greatest fighting force that mankind can muster, even the worst natural disaster that we can imagine. Listen, Psalm 18 verse 10 says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. Here I am getting all excited. We're only in verse 1. Let me share the rest of the psalm with you. Look at verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. I like that verse 2 begins with therefore. Because God is, therefore, I will not fear. Therefore, even if the earth changes, I don't know how much sleep you've lost over climate change, but it says that if the earth changes, God doesn't. Even if the mountains fall into the sea and the, and the oceans rush up onto the shore, God doesn't change. You say, well, what if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if I get attacked by terrorists? What if my boyfriend leaves me? What if I don't get into college? What if I get into college and I get my degree in sociopolitical French language feminist science and I don't have a job when I get out and I owe $260,000 in student loans? What then? You know what? Even then, God is. Even then, he doesn't change. Because according to the psalm, the whole earth can change. Earthquakes, climate change, floods. It doesn't matter because the only thing that doesn't change is God. He still is. He's still my refuge. He is still my very present help in time of trouble. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 19. Look how big God is. Last week, we looked at Psalm 139. Look how small we are. And this week, I want us to, as we're tearing apart Psalm 46, I want us to remember one thing for sure. That God who is so big, with that me who is so small, he really is who he says he is. Everything shakes. Everything can be destroyed and taken away. Everything you hold dear can be lost. It could all go away tomorrow, except for one thing, God is. He always was, and he always will be. Therefore, I shall not fear. Life's filled with difficulty, but God is. Look at verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. It's awesome when you realize that no matter who is wreaking havoc, our God is, and he is able. Look at verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Friends, when everything is stirred up, you don't have to be shaken. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob 
is our stronghold. You say, well, this is, this, you know, we see this kind of stuff in the Psalms, but those are bygone days. I mean, does God really do that kind of stuff anymore? Let's go to the New Testament real quick, real quick. Turn to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to wrap it up with this. Romans chapter 8. What does the New Testament have to say about this Old Testament God that we're hearing so much about? Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Is there anything better than that? Is there any truth that you want to hold on to that is more significant than that? And then look how Psalm 46 ends because that's true. Verse 10, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Close your eyes. I don't usually do this. I have a word from God for you. Are you ready? Cease striving and know that I am God.